when we moved to Mount Pulaski a few years ago, I came to really appreciate boxes. They make moving so much easier. You can throw a lot of things into a box and transport them. They help to organize things and keep things in place. They're easy to handle, easy to stack. And another thing that helps is having different sizes of boxes, small ones, big ones, and medium-sized ones. And most of the time, my favorite size of the boxes, the one I like the most is the medium size. You can get several things in there, and it's easy to carry. And I like the big guys carry the big boxes. You know, I want something manageable. And here's what I think many of us have done. We put God into a box that we can handle. He's big enough for some things, but not so big that we can't manage him. And we put God in a box, say, okay, God, this is your space. This is designated for you, and this is where you fit. And a lot of us were handed boxes, handed a box uh, by a denomination or by a church, and they said, this is the God box. This is how he works. Is this what he can and cannot do? Well, as we study the story, these first 11 weeks, I hope at least one thing has come out for all of us. I hope that we have seen that however big the box we have for God, it's too small. God does not fit into a box of any size. I am amazed at who this God is as as I've been reading through this story. But we want to keep him small enough so we can handle him and manage him, have him fit where we want him to fit. And if you have a God that fits in a box, you're going to live tend to live in a lot of fear and anxiety and stress and pressure because your God's not big enough to handle some things. He's not big enough to come through for you. You might also find that life is pretty mundane and even boring because you don't have a big enough God to cause you to risk and take challenges and you want to play it safe. You don't have a big enough God to to use you to make a difference in life. Challenges will seem overwhelming because your God is not big enough to fix things or redeem things. God, you're in this box And there's certain things you cannot or will not do, and all of us tend to do this. And this has been, I would say, the most important outcome of the story for me. My God is too small, and I have put him in a box. I've limited him. And frankly, can I be honest here? Please don't fall out of your seats on this. Frankly, I don't trust God at times. And I'm not so sure I like everything about him. And if I let him out of the box, if I let God be God, he may do some things or ask some things and and challenge me just too much. Maybe he'd ask me to do things that are too risky. Here's another thing I like to do when moving. I want to label the box. Okay, I want to know what's in there. Uh, Books, toys, electronics, clothes, Ellen's clothes, Ellen's shoes, Ellen's stuff, you know. And we, we tend to label our box for God. For instance, there's the God could never use me after what I've done box. I've blown it and God can't use me. There's the God doesn't work that way anymore box. God used to do things. He used to do great things in Bible times, but not anymore. There's the we've never done it that way before in the church box. Or I'm not talented enough box. There's just different ways that we limit God by the size of the box and the label on the box. When we read this story and just see how mind-blowing this God is, how out of the box he is, uncontainable, indescribable, unimaginable, this amazing God. We don't need bigger boxes. We need to get rid of the boxes. Let's let God be God. Can you imagine an unboxed God in this church or in your life? Can you imagine what that would be? A.W. Tozer said, Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon our concept of God. And then he goes on and says, the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy concept 
of God. The, the biggest challenge facing us is not cultural, it's not political, it's, it's not economic, it's our view of God and not understanding how great and how big he is and how scary he is. And if we just had a different perspective of who God is, it would change everything. It would radicalize your life and mine. It would radicalize this church. But we put God in a box. We've contained him and limited him. This week is chapter 11. It's about David, who becomes the greatest king of Israel. It starts in 1 Samuel 16, where he's anointed the new king. And he's about a freshman in high school at this point, working as a shepherd for his family. That's a low job. A job description for a shepherd was... Watch sheep. I mean, that's it. It was probably boring, a lot of idle time, no iPads or smartphones to entertain himself. So one way he kept himself busy was by writing music and composing and singing songs. The book of Psalms has a lot of his compositions, and they're very good. Another thing he did was practice his slingshot, and he got quite good at that. There was not a whole lot to do, so he'd just do target practice over and over, and he'd whirl that thing around his head, and... He'd shoot that thing off and it could hit a tree, a skinny tree, 200 yards off. So David is watching sheep, singing songs, slinging rocks, nothing spectacular. His own dad didn't even think he was anything special. Because Samuel the prophet comes and he's going to anoint the next king. And Jesse knows that Samuel's coming to anoint the next king. And uh, by the way, Jesse is the grandson of, anyone know? Boaz and Ruth. Okay, that's another thing I love about the story. It helps see how these things all fit together and how God is working his master plan. Anyway, Samuel the prophet comes to Jesse's house to anoint the next king, and David's seven brothers are at the house. Now, Jesse knows he's coming to anoint the king, so he has the boys ready. They're dressed in their $1,000 suits and their wingtips and their you know, permed hair, and uh, the thing, interesting thing is Jesse doesn't have David there. I mean, surely it'll be one of these other seven brothers. Verse 6 says, when, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, Lib is the oldest. He makes a great impression. He's good-looking. He's tall. He fits the mold. See, Samuel has a box that this is how God's leader looks. This is the kind of person that God uses. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God rejects the oldest because God has a different criteria for choosing a king. Samuel looks at the next son and the next and the next. Samuel goes through all three, all seven of them, and God's rejected them all. And I'm thinking it's probably a little awkward at this point. Uh, you got any out, anything out back, you know? And Jesse said, well, there's this one son. He's the youngest, and the Hebrew there carries the idea of being the runt of the litter. Okay, Jesse didn't even... Think to have him come in from the field. No way the runt would be the choice. He's a shepherd, singing songs, slinging rocks. That's his resume. Sammy says, go get him. Long story short, he's the one, and he's anointed. Here's another box we put God in. God can only use certain people. We look at the exterior. We look at talents and abilities. We judge people largely how they look. Now, I have a couple pictures up here, and uh, they're what he sees and what she sees when they look in a mirror. Now, what's a woman see when she looks in the mirror? Let's, okay. <clears throat> now, she's fairly thin, you know, and she looks in the mirror and sees huge. And women always ask, does this make me look fat? She's quite attractive, but she sees the flaws. Now, guys, what do guys see when they look in the mirror? Let's do the next one. He's not in the best of shape, but he sees Hercules. Now, uh, we had to cover part of him up because it's a little bit gross. But uh, 
make that picture go away, okay? Here's how one lady described herself. Crooked nose, dull eyes, thick arms, stubby legs, pouched stomach, boring hair, ugly smile, bad fashion sense, brittle nails, small lips. One is bigger than the other. I'm average, boring, nothing special. I wake up, look at myself in the mirror, look at everything that's wrong with me. Now, when you ask her boyfriend what he sees, beautiful legs, warm brown eyes, vibrant hair, a smile that makes his heart stop every time he sees it, her round, cute lips, her adorable little nose, nice figure. And when he hears her talk about herself the way she does, he says, I don't get it. She's perfect. Who's right? Neither. They're both wrong. We can't even get the exterior right, much less the interior God says, I don't even look on the outside because there's some things that are more important. That Have you ever known people when you first meet them, they're pretty good looking and they're attractive and then the more you get to know them, they get uglier? Have you noticed? Because of arrogance, obnoxious, you know, their attitude. And then there's some people, the first time you meet them, they're not real good looking, you know, kind of homely, maybe downright ugly, but then you get to know them, they get better looking. Did they really get better looking? No, you started to see their heart and see beyond the facade, their kindness and their personality and their winsomeness. So God says, don't put my choice of people in a box because I'm going to use people you don't think I would use. David is too young, too inexperienced. He's the runt of the litter. Some of you say, I'm too old to use. You've got the age box. You might say you're too young. But uh, if you think you're too old, then you need to go back and read about Abraham and Sarah again or read about Moses who was called to go to Egypt when he was 80 years old. Some of you say, I'm too guilty. I got the guilt box. I've done too many things, uh, too much sin in my life, too much history. Well, then you need to go back and read about Rahab the prostitute. Some of you have the, uh, that box, fear. I'm afraid. Well, then you need to go back and read about Gideon, who was hiding when God called him. Some of you have a circumstance box. Well, everything's gone wrong in my life. My circumstances are just too difficult. Well, you need to go back and read Joseph, who had everything go wrong in his life and becomes vice president of Egypt. Get God out of the box. You know, whatever you've labeled your box, get rid of it. There is one qualification God looks for. says God looks at the heart. Let me ask you this morning, how much time did you spend preparing your outer self 10 minutes, two hours? And how much time did you spend preparing your inner self, the heart that matters? 1 Samuel 13, 14, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Talking about David. What is, it, what's it mean to have a heart after God or a heart for God? When someone says, I have Jesus in my heart, what's that mean? Some mystical awareness, some emotional feeling, does it mean perfection? Well, David was not perfect. He struggled as a father. He stole another man's wife. He had the other guy killed to cover it up. But when God sees him, he says, I see his heart. I see something there. Obviously, God's not after perfection. God looks at the heart. What's that mean? Well, the heart is the totality of your being, your intellect, your emotions, your will, your mind. A heart after God is that all of me is turned over to God. Jesus in my heart is not emotional goosebumps. It's my full personality is engulfed in him, and he's a controlling impulse in my life. Can you imagine if we had 300 people who had a heart after God? What would that be like? One aspect of David is that a heart after God exhibits a sense of wild abandon. David is not cautious. He just followed God, said, God, I'm all yours. One time he just started dancing and praising God, and he did it in public, and it embarrassed his wife. 
Try that up on the square in Mount Pulaski sometime or, or go down to Lincoln and start dancing and singing and praising God. Yeah, God loves me and I love God and dancing around. David's leaping and jumping and then he started taking his clothes off. Now, don't do that on the square in Mount Pulaski, but you know, his wife gets mad. He says a dignitary does never, just never does this. It's embarrassing. And he says, I don't care who sees it, God is in the house. Most of us have a, he has a hunger for, for the honor of God. Most of us have a hunger for our own honor. And so we play it safe. We want to be sophisticated. David has a hunger to honor God, and he lived in this wild abandon. Now, wild abandon doesn't have to be singing and dancing. Another wild abandon might be adopting a child from Africa. What kind of heart is that? Or maybe go to Bible college to be a youth minister or a preacher. Crazy. Or talk to my neighbor about Jesus. That's out of my box. Or volunteer at the food pantry or teach a Sunday school class or work with children or maybe give away a car. When's the last time you did anything outside the box? When's the last time you were so overwhelmed by what God has done for you? You know, our folks that are in Africa today, keep praying for them, by the way. They come back Tuesday. But we can talk about them because they're not here. When you're not here, we talk about you. Just remember that. So Micah, anyway, Micah Wakeman, you need to read his post on Facebook from a couple days ago. But Micah is not the worst-looking man in our church. But I think he would also say he's not the best-looking man in our church. That's me. <laughs> but that really doesn't matter, does it? See, But you know what I see with Micah? I see his passionate love for Jesus Christ. And it's so obvious, this heart for God. He has a heart for kids. And because of that, he does these crazy things, this wild abandon. He just, it's almost like he cannot help but to praise the Lord. I would not be surprised at anything Michael Wakeman does because he doesn't have a box. He cannot do enough for Jesus. There was a woman in one church that I preached at, and she just worshiped exuberantly and expressive and some people who knew her said, well, she's got relational issues, she's been divorced, and her, kids, her own kids don't like her, she's not been a very good mother, she, she's a sinner. And there she is singing with all her heart and putting on a show, and she's a hypocrite. Could it be that she understood grace more than everyone else who had it together? Aren't we all hypocrites? Aren't we all inconsistent? Having a heart for God does not mean we're perfect, but it's a wild abandon that says, I'm yours, God, use me. Would you dare get God out of the box and let him control your life and use you? Several times David gives large amounts of money to God. One time he was going to worship God with a sacrifice, and he said, I will not offer a sacrifice to God that does not cost me anything. He had a giving heart. Impulsive worship, enthusiasm, and giving. When else do you do that? Praise and give and exuberance, it's when you're dating. Romance. How do you win someone's heart? By giving them praise and giving to them. This happens before marriage, of course, not after. You know, you're beautiful. You got that adrenaline going, the roses and the chocolate. Remember what it was like before marriage? That's how God, uh, David loves God, you know. And it wouldn't be a bad idea to do it after marriage either, by the way. Another thing, a heart after God includes deep reflection. Now, these two don't always go together. People who are impulsive and act with wild abandon tend to do it all the time. But David knew You've got to have some solitude, some time with God, or you won't really know him. It's the same thing in romance. You won't know who, who, who she or he or she really is until you spend some time with him. And the more time you spend, the more you learn. And most of David's growing up years, he was with sheep, probably by himself, had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to talk to God and sing, and he became a great musician, a great theologian, and became a man of God. Because he did these two, wild abandon, 
and deep reflection. A heart after God is a hunger for God. I wish I had that heart. Don't you? Missionary was telling about Christians in Rwanda. They worship one hour every morning. Every morning? One hour? Any of you do that? How do we get this heart? Most of the time, I believe we put God in a box because we are distracted. You might want to write that on your outline. I think this is so key. There's too many other things going on in our life. Go, 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 busy, 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 and we lose focus of what's really important. God has blessed us, and then these blessings get in the way of God. It's so ironic. We have so much in our lives, so much noise, so much busyness, and it's all a blessing, but how can you ever get to know God? You'll never know He's merciful, compassionate, without some solitude. One thing I love about Sunday morning is one day a week I am forced to stop and think about God. Now, I'll be honest, I'm afraid to pray for a heart after God because God might start removing the distractions. Christianity is thriving and booming. You know where? It's in countries where they don't have much, third world countries. And they give it all to God, I, I'm guessing, because they don't have much else to distract them. One of the best times of reflection for me is when my car is getting worked on and I'm forced to sit in the waiting room. So I read, pray, think. And I told Ellen this last week, we need to get an old beater of a car that has to be worked on every week so I can sit more. And she didn't think that was a too cool of an idea. But here's, here's the good news about this for all of it. Here's the good news. We all have a built-in hunger for God. We were created with this need for a fellowship with Him. And it goes back to the Garden of Eden when man and woman were created. The bad news is that we fill that hunger with everything else. And that's where all these distractions come in. And we fill our life with everything else and keep God in His box and say, God, you stay in your box because I have my life to live. After David's anointed, he goes back to watching sheep, slinging rocks, singing songs. Seems a little odd. He's going to be the king. And it'd be another 15 years before he assumes the throne. What's God waiting for? Here's another box. God can only use work on a certain timetable. God, I want you to work according to my timetable. And I don't want to wait. Waiting is hard. Maybe you're waiting for a job. Maybe you're waiting for the right person to come into your life. Maybe you're... uh, Waiting to get pregnant? I I don't know. David is waiting 15 years just singing and slinging rocks. And then in chapter 16, Saul, King Saul, started having some bouts of depression, and he heard that the youngest son of Jesse was a musician. So David comes in and plays his harp and sings songs for the king, kind of a musical Prozac type of thing. And then in chapter 17, Jesse tells David to take food to his brothers who are in the army, and David goes out, and there's no fighting going on, and there's this giant named Goliath mocking the armies of God. Page 147, it says, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span, something like nine feet tall. And then it describes his helmet, his armor, and his shield. I mean, just an intimidating, imposing figure. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And this goes on for 40 days. And David arrives and he hears this and he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that they should defy the armies of the living God? Someone needs to shut him up. And he goes to Saul and says, I'll fight him. And Saul says, You're a harpist. You can't fight him. I'm not going to set my harp player against a giant. See, God in a box. God would never use a harp player to do battle, would he? And you know the story, David kills Goliath with what? That sling. You see what God's doing? For years, David is in the fields, wasting his time, singing songs and slinging rocks. And what's God use? 
songs in chapter 16 and the sling in chapter 17. And then he uses experience as a shepherd when he becomes the king to be a good leader. God has been work all this time preparing David to do something great. Here's another box we put God in. God can only use certain methods. Certain methods. Goliath sees him and laughs because he's just a boy. He says, I'm going to feed your flesh to the animals. Most of the chapters really trash talk. You know, you're ugly. You know, you're ugly. Your mother wears army boots. You wimp. Kind of acting like a couple of preacher's kids. But anyway, then in 1 Samuel 17, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. I think you need to cut that out and put it on your refrigerator. Because you're all going to face a giant at some time in your life if you haven't already. David doesn't have a box for God. I'm going to cut off your head, Goliath. And he runs at him. I love it. He charges. This is a teenager. This is a kid with a song and a sling. Really? God can't use that. A harpist? And what stands out in the David and Goliath story is no fear. Saul and his army are terrified. Why? Because God's in a box for them. If your God is small, you'll have fear. David doesn't have this fear. But if your God is in a box, you'll fear all the what ifs. Well, what if Goliath wins? What if the economy doesn't recover? What if I get cancer? What if I lose my portfolio? What if the next tornado gets my house? What if we have a drought? When your God lives in a box, you're going to see all the what ifs of life. But here's the worst thing. You'll see all the cannots of life. Well, we can't beat Goliath. He's a giant. We, God can't heal. God can't provide. God can't redeem. God can't. God can't. David doesn't see the what ifs. He doesn't see the cannots. He sees the who is. When we were growing up, we heard the story of David and Goliath. It's really not David and Goliath. It's God and Goliath. So if your God tells you to play it safe, he's in a box. If your God cannot heal and cannot provide, he's in a box. If your God is his job to obey you and be a genie that exists to grant your wishes and has to do things on your timetable, then you put him in a box. If your God loves Americans more than Iranians, your God is in a box. If your God is a Democrat or Republican, you put him in a really small box. If your God never wrecks your schedule or messes up your plans, if your God never asks you to do something that isn't in your budget, if your God needs a certain president to be in the office to accomplish his will in our nation, then your God is in a box. If your God's dream for you is to retire and take a few decades just for yourself, you've boxed up God and put him on a shelf. If your God always agrees with you and you always think your opinions are right and he agrees with your opinions, if your God is a Methodist or Lutheran or Catholic or Christian church, he's in a box. If your God is fine with greed and lust and gossip because those are lesser sins and you're still better than most people, you put him in a box. If your God cannot make a church operate without Teresa and the Wakemans and the Mots for two weeks, by the way, I thought of one big advantage of not having a secretary. It's the only one I can think of. I get her parking space. But that's it. <clears throat> 
But if your family's too broken, if your marriage is beyond hope, if you're too dumb, if you're too poor, if you're too late, if you're too guilty, if you're too ugly, if you're too old, your God is in a box. If your God never gets angry, if your God is a God that is not to be feared, he's in a box. If your God never makes you tremble, and if he never scares you, if he never confuses you, if your God is a God that never challenges you or makes you uncomfortable, he's in a box. Now, I did all these, I looked at all, God's not in any of these boxes. Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending upon our concept of God. The basic trouble with the church today is our unworthy concept of God. My king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. Well, you can't get him off of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees 